You're listening to the Wildenstein Plattner Institute Oral Histories, an unprecedented firsthand account from art historians, archivists, gallerists, and others with close connections to WPI's research projects. My name is Caitlin Sweeney, and I am the Director of Digital Publications at the Wildenstein Plattner Institute. Today is December 17th, 2020, and I'm recording this oral history with Roberta Bernstein for the WPI. Roberta Bernstein is the author of the Jasper Johns Catalog Resume of Painting and Sculpture, which was published by the WPI in 2017. I met Roberta in 2011 when I started working as her research assistant. The experience was formative for me. I learned so much about working on catalog resumes, and I know that's true for you too, Roberta. I'm hoping that we can delve into some of the insights that you gained working with a living artist on such a critically important publication. Uh, so first of all, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I've really been looking forward to having this conversation. Well, that's a pleasure. To, yeah, uh, to start, I'd like to talk about your history with Jasper Johns and how you came to be regarded as an expert on his work. Uh, you first heard about Jasper Johns from John Cage, is that correct? Yes, it is. Um, although I did have a professor at UMass Amherst where I was an undergraduate who knew about what was going on in contemporary art. His name is Carl Belts, and that was influential as well. But the main impetus was having met John Cage after he gave a concert at UMass. Um, and I talked to him about, you know, my interest in contemporary art and contemporary culture. And he suggested that I go to see the Jasper John show at the Jewish Museum in New York. And even though that wasn't something I would do at the drop of a hat, uh, because John <laughs> Cage recommended it, I made sure I got there. And I did see that show, which was a 10-year retrospective of his work. And it just kind of blew me away, as they say. It just uh, yeah. had a tremendous influence on me. And that has stayed with me for decades. Yeah. So that's how I first made the connection. Um, can you talk about how you met the artist himself? I, that was a few years later, but um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear about your first encounter with Jasper Johns. Okay. I moved to New York in the summer of 1966 to begin graduate school that fall uh, at Columbia University. And uh, because of my interest in contemporary art, I was going to galleries all the time and I met a lot of artists and um, that whole fall was just a very exciting period of immersing myself in the contemporary art world. But it wasn't until April of 1967 that I ended up meeting Jasper Johns. Um, I walked into Castelli, the Leo Castelli Gallery one day, and there he was standing at the top of the staircase, and he was <laughs> talking to Kay Beerman, who worked there at the time, and Roy Lichtenstein. And I was just flabbergasted, and he could not have been <laughs> more welcoming and friendly. And uh, after we talked for a while, he invited me to come visit him at his Riverside Drive apartment. He said, well, that's really near Columbia, and you should just drop by one day. I had asked him if he would sign a poster for me for friends who were coming to New York from England, a flag, which he was, hmm. you know, I wanted him to sign it, welcome to the United States. But he said, I won't do that, but I'll, and why don't you just come to my apartment? So a couple of weeks later, I got my courage up and called him thinking he'll probably not even remember who I am or that he said it. And the first words out of his mouth were, well, I've been expecting you to call. And I said, oh, okay. Um, he said, um, you know, and I said, well, when can I come visit? And he said, well, what are you doing right now? So I said, oh, okay. Wow. And um, I 
remember walking down from Columbia and I stopped at a flower shop because one of the things I remembered from John Cage's essay on John's was that he loves all flowers. So I thought, well, I'll bring him a bouquet and I picked out a bouquet of red, yellow, and blue flowers to bring him. So I think that made a good impression. But I had a lovely visit that afternoon and he signed my posters and you know, I was there for hours. And in the meantime, you know, Richard Hamilton came to visit, Merce Cunningham came to visit. And I kept saying, could I go now? And he said, well, you're welcome to stay. If you want to go, you can. So I ended up staying for several hours and it was just thrilling. And that was how we met and developed a friendship after that. That's such a remarkable story um, to be thrust into this uh, situation where you're talking with one of your one of the artists you admire the most and and this circle of of real luminaries. And um, I think one of the things that was a joy working with you is that uh, you had this really um, a firsthand experience going to these shows, knowing these individuals. And um, that was really also reflected in your journal. Um, if you could speak a little bit about how your relationship with John's um, evolved from friendship to actually working in the studio and how you kept track of that information. Um, I think that would be a really interesting topic to hear about. Right. Well, you know, I realized at a certain point while I was studying at Columbia that I loved art history and I loved digging into earlier periods of history. But what I really loved was the firsthand contact with the artists of our time. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of gave me a different perspective on what I wanted to do uh, in terms of my work at Columbia. And after, I guess it was after the summer, I think Johns was away for the summer, In the fall, he needed someone to help him work on some projects. And at the time, I had been working part-time at Andy Warhol's factory. And, um, you know, it wasn't real. I wasn't getting paid. I was just doing things. (laughs) But Johns was offering me a real job. And so I ended up taking that job. And I remember when I told Andy Warhol, he said, well... I knew you would leave me for Jasper. <laughs> he, he really likes intellectual Jewish women. Um, but he understood and, uh, that it was a real job. And so I started seeing John's. At the time, he hadn't yet moved to his Houston Street studio. He was working at David mm-hmm. Whitney's Loft on Canal Street when I first started. And at the time, I was keeping a personal journal. It wasn't a journal like, oh, I'm going to be an art historian, and so I have to write down everything. It was really about my life. But a big part of my life at the time was being around these artists. So the journal is full of those kind of um bits of information that wove into other aspects of my life. So, you know, while I was working for John's and that was, you know, a good couple of years, I was there pretty regularly. uh, I did keep track of what he was working on and what he was doing and things he said. And so when it came time for me to choose a topic for my dissertation, I was hopeful that my advisor, Theodore Reff, who was the main modernist there at the time, would be open to my doing a dissertation on a living artist. This was an unheard of thing at Columbia at the time. So fortunately, the two artists he would agree to were Rochenberg and Johns. And I ended up doing a master's paper on Rochenberg and then did the dissertation on John's. And he was supportive of that, which I'm very grateful for, because it was the first dissertation that Columbia had 
allowed on a living artist. So that's how dissertation got started. Um, so, Roberta, you were saying that you wrote your master's on Rauschenberg and then your dissertation on Johns. Um, I'm curious, what was it that led uh, Theodora Raff to agree to let you write your dissertation on a living artist since it, you know, it was a feat in and of itself to be the first dissertation at Columbia on a living artist. Right. Well, I think, I think he at the time thought, okay, of this generation of artists, you know, living artists at the time, he thought that Rauschenberg and Johns had the most potential to remain historically important. Mm. The others, he mm. wasn't so sure. And I think that he he had such an interest in the artists he worked on, in their psychological condition. And I always had a sense he wished he knew Cezanne and he wished he knew Degas yeah. personally. So I think on some level he understood why I was so interested in in that kind of personal connection. Yes. Yes. As a, a brief aside, the Wildenstein Flattner Institute just published uh, Theodore Raff's com compilation of letters by Edgar Degas. And you really do get a sense of his commitment to, um, you know, the perspective of the artist. It's, it's really a tremendous publication. Um, but I'm also thinking back to your journal. Um, I remember one time we were going through it, you actually came across a passage where you were reading a book by John Rewald on the subway and um, you ran into Jasper Johns. Right. And I love I love that coincidence because uh, John Rewald wrote the catalog resume of Cezanne. So it seems like a, a lovely coincidence uh, in hindsight. Well, it was, I mean, this was very shortly after I met him I think it was, I had been to his apartment and got on the subway. It was a crowded car. I sat down, started reading Rewald Cezanne. It was an assignment. And then looked up and who was sitting next to me, but Jasper Johns, who was reading the New York Times. So, you know, I thought, oh my God, I'm reading about Cezanne. Here's Jasper Johns. This is such a coincidence. It was one of those magic moments. So yeah. it was really Absolutely. quite incredible. Yeah. Um, once once you were working in a studio, can you describe any of the projects that you were working on? Well, actually, when I first started, he was working on, excuse me, the set for um, Merce Cunningham's uh, Walk Around Time, oh, wow. which used um, these sculptural elements that were based on Duchamp's large glass. And this was an idea that Johns had. He was artistic director for Cunningham's dance company at the time. And Duchamp had given permission for him to do a set based on the large glass. And um, I don't know what I was doing about that, but that's what I remember when I was at David Whitney's loft. I remember him working on that project. Uh, and that was very exciting because the day that Jasper went to get Duchamp to show him what he had done, he invited me to come along. Oh, wow. And that was one of the most amazing experiences, seeing the two of them together interacting, seeing Duchamp's reaction to the set. I mean, John's never considered that a work of art of his. Right. He just saw himself as a facilitator, and he's you know doing a, a scenery for Bruce Cunningham, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. But it was very, very exciting to see Duchamp and John's together, interacting. It was those kind of things that you know kept inspiring me more and more to want to do a dissertation and do my research on Jasper Johns because, you know, every situation revealed to me how extraordinary he was and how extraordinary his art was. 
Yeah, with I'm I I'm so tempted to launch into topics other than the catalog resume, but I know that you've written extensively on his um, artistic influences, Cezanne and Duchamp, Duchamp being primary among them. Um, but, and you see him as a, an artist that really operates within the context of an art historical legacy. Right, well, in, interestingly, I mean, that was Ted Reff's, Theodore Reff's approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, one course he taught was modern art and tradition. And he was very much interested in how artists looked at their artistic predecessors and what they got from that activity. And so when I went to formulate my dissertation, I incorporated that approach and much of the dissertation and my future work is about how John's related to his artistic predecessors. And it's been a very rewarding um, endeavor because that's such an important part of his work. Absolutely. And that is actually an interesting segue into how you came to be involved with establishing his legacy through a publication like A Catalog Resume. Um, and so maybe that's a, a a good place to to launch from. Um, how did you become involved with the Catalog Resume Project with the, the Wildenstein Institute? Well, um, at the time, this all was generated around uh, two, I'm trying to remember now, could it have been like 2004, that early? I think so. I was working on a second book on John's, which I had always planned to do because the dissertation, which I had revised and was published as a book, covered the first 20 years of his work. And then there were 20 more years. And, you know, I wanted to do a second book and John's was very supportive of that. And then the idea came up, which was generated by, um, Wildenstein to do a catalog resume. And Johns was somewhat hesitant, but he asked me if I would be interested in, well, actually it didn't quite happen that way because there was another um, art historian, Francis Nauman, who was involved in generating the idea. That didn't work out, but um, because of my work on John's and my previous work, and because I was working on the book, John's thought, well, maybe I would be the right person, mm-hmm. as long as I didn't abandon the idea of working on the book. <laughs> and that's how the whole idea of the catalog resume and the book going together, but the book always remaining a separate entity um, was evolved. And at the time, Wildenstein was involved with Pace. You know, there was the Pace-Wildenstein gallery. Mm -hmm. Wildenstein was, as well as his old master gallery, was involved with contemporary art. And he was working with Joachim Pizarro, who uh, was very interested in Jasper Johns's work, and I think put the idea in his ear to support a catalog resume on Jasper Johns. And he was also very enthusiastic about Jasper's work. And so it all came together. Um, I remember we had a, a few lunches and somehow the idea evolved and the commitment to doing the project evolved out of that process. And I I remember you telling me that it was really important to John's that um, a non-for-profit, which the Wildenstein Institute, uh, it was independent from the gallery, um, but that that it was not a gallery that was doing the catalog resume. Yes, this was very important to John's. He, you know, he really didn't want a commercial enterprise to be involved. And before it got off the ground, he had to be sure that 
the Wildenstein Institute, which had a long history of doing catalogs resume, was the entity mm-hmm. that was supporting it and that that was a not-for-profit entity. Mm-hmm. That was very important to him. Um, that is so interesting. And so um, we're lucky that uh, that the Wildensteins were interested in, in bringing their own history of doing impressionist catalogs uh, kind of into the 20, 21st century, um, into an American context. I think Jasper Johns was the first contemporary artist that they had decided to work with. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And, it, you know, he wasn't involved with the Pace Wildenstein Gallery in any way, and that was also mm-hmm. important. And, uh, you know, Jasper may have, you know, liked the idea that he was in the company of these European artists that Wildenstein had previously supported in terms of their work on their scholarly work on catalogs resume. So um, a catalog resume is for uh, an immense project. You know, you are uh, setting out to identify and locate and record uh, all of the works within the artists of. And I, I wanted you to talk about how you started. Where was your starting point? Um, you had the artist to consult, but um, there's a lot of information that they don't necessarily know about what happened to their work once it goes out into the world. So, um, yeah, I was hoping you could speak about just the initial steps laying the foundation for the project. Right. Well, um, fortunately, John's had kept fairly good records on his work. And we decided at the beginning that this was a painting and sculpture catalog that we weren't dealing with the works on paper. And he had very good records of the work and they turned out to be, while they were incomplete and sometimes inaccurate in various ways, it was a good starting point. And so the first thing was to transfer his database to ours, but that was a big issue because we didn't really have a good working database that had to be created and that took a while. And a lot of the energy of the beginning of the project went into designing the right database. So the first step was to transfer the records. Also, I um, hired Heidi Colesman Freiberger, our the, the Wildenstein hired her, but I searched for someone who had experience working on catalogs resume, and Heidi Colesman Freiberger came very highly recommended. She had just recently worked on the Barnett Newman catalog resume and had a lot of experience working with art publishers as a researcher and editor. So. Um, she came on board, um, and we both were working part-time. I was still teaching at the University at mm-hmm. Albany. Um, we didn't have the hugest budget, so, you know, Heidi was working with us part-time. But it was definitely a very good way to start. Um, and Heidi also, while we were waiting for our database to get designed and giving input into that, She uh, worked at the Museum of Modern Art, the 1996 retrospective that the Museum of Modern Art put on uh, was an occasion where a huge amount of data was gathered, uh, bibliographical data, data about exhibitions, uh, you know, a huge amount of research had gone into that. I actually wrote an essay for that catalog. But Heidi started to go through all of the bibliographic material and enter it so that we had that archive to start with as well. Yeah. I, I remember seeing those boxes from MoMA and, you know, just, I think there were eight or nine or 10 just boxes filled with, um, yeah, bibliographic exhibition research. It was an incredible resource. Right, because we ended up going over it later as well. 
Um, we remember when we all went out to Queens and yes. <laughs> spent days going through those boxes just to, as part of our our <clears throat> checking process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but that's where Heidi started, and you know whatever information she could input at that stage, she did. So that was really our starting point. Yeah. When you started um, doing more follow, like after the MoMA, um, I'm curious, you were able to look at John's administrative records, but you weren't necessarily looking at personal correspondence or personal photos. It was, you were really focusing on the objects and, and what it, um, where they had traveled or like, you know, their provenance, right. for example. Yeah. Right. Well, we didn't have 100% cleared access to John's records. He was still somewhat guarded about any personal material. I mean, he was very um, generous about his time and his staff's time, but it wasn't like he said, you know, here are the records, go through them. I worked through his... um, office manager, Sarah Taggart. Do you remember her last name at the time, Caitlin? I, I only knew her as Sarah Taggart, really, unfortunately. All right. I just... All right. His, his office manager, Sarah Taggart, and I worked with her going through a lot of the records because you know, there was information he didn't want shown about, you know, I think how, how much work sold for, you know, he he was a guarded person, and he, sure. as generous as he was with me, he just wanted to give the information that I needed for the cataloging of the work. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I remember, I think it was around the same time I started working, maybe a little bit before, you discovered that David Whitney, who had been a curator at the Whitney Museum, had worked for Leo Castelli, had actually compiled a list that was um, almost like a proto-catalog resume and that those files were at the Manil. And, um, right, David Whitney had worked with Johns on the um, Whitney Museum retrospective in the mid-70s. And for his work on that exhibition, he had compiled a huge amount of information about provenance and, you know, other notes that were invaluable to our uh, our cataloging process. So that resource came along. And then, of course, there are the records of the Leo Castelli Gallery. Right. But what happened is right in the middle of our research, when we were ready to look at those records, they had been given by Barbara Costelli, Leo's widow, to the Archives of American Art. And we didn't have access to them until the archives uh, processed those records. But in fact, um, at a certain point, you know, it all worked out. We did get to spend a lot of time in Washington going through those materials. So I would say the main archival materials were MoMA's um, files from the 1996 retrospective, the David Whitney papers, the Costelli papers at the Archives of American Art, and then John's own studio records. Right. So, yeah, sort of collating so many different sources. And amongst that, it's maybe a good time to turn to the artist himself. Um, you're gathering so much information about the works of art from a cataloging perspective, but then I was hoping that you could talk about working working with him, uh, not only how you established what works belonged in the, in the catalog resume, um, but I understand that establishing their chronological order was very important. Right. That was a very big part of the project. And from the beginning, it was the part that Johns was most skeptical about. He said, I'm not going to remember. You're not going to get it right. You have to p- 
what can I just stop for a second? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um Okay, where were we, Caitlin? Yeah, we, you were working with Jasper. Yeah, working with Jasper, chronological order. Right, right. Okay. One of the most important things, of course, is the order in which the works are lined up. And who better to discuss that with, of course, than the artist? Although from the get-go, Johns knew that he wouldn't remember exactly. And it's interesting because he was... He wanted to get things right, but when he knew things couldn't be reconstructed to be right, quote unquote, he he was very concerned about that. And, you know, I assured him that, you know, there was always a a caveat when things um, weren't verifiable, where the user of the catalog could be told this is the according to the artist's memory the author's research this is the closest we can come to the chronological order so he i think he felt okay about it after a while because he was assured that this wouldn't be presented as the absolute truth but the best we could do according to the research that we had and his memory. So we spent a lot of time going through the order, you know, and uh, Vicki Sand, who was helping me work on mostly the administration of the project, but she made up these cards that I could bring when I visited him so we could lay out the order that I had, and then he could switch it around as he remembered things differently. So we spent a lot of time doing that. And in the meantime, you know, I asked him any questions I had about the works that bore upon the cataloging. You know, a big issue was with the very earliest work, you know, the first flag and the first targets and, you know, getting that straight. So we spent a lot of time reconstructing that period of 1954 to early 55. And I remember- Do you mind if I ask? Oh yeah, do do you mind if I ask? um, Were you ever bringing him new pieces of information that would spark a memory or were there, were some periods of time clearer than others for him? How How would he go about this process of remembering? You know, sometimes it was interesting. I think sometimes he would just say, I don't remember. And it was like he didn't want to remember necessarily or give me that information. Other times it was like his memory was so sharp. He was right there and really did remember things very clearly. So it really varied. And, you know, maybe it had to do with his mood sometimes or his attitude toward the project, because, you know, I think it is a very tricky thing because I also observed as Ellsworth Kelly was working with the researcher, Eva Lanois, who was working on his catalog, you know, artists are so focused on what they're doing now in the moment that to think back, you know, 50 years can sometimes be interesting, but at other times, it seems irrelevant. So I remember a couple of times I'd, I'd talk to, be talking to Jasper and have all these questions. And he'd go, you know, this is so boring. And I would go, boring? These are the <laughs> most important questions about your work. But, you know, I understood what he meant because it was like, he's chomping at the bit. I want to get back to what I'm doing now. I did that then. And then, you know, sometimes I'd think, you know, how was he going to remember 50 years ago? You know, someone asked me what I was doing 20 years ago. And did you do this the day before that? You know, so, (laughs) you know, I was trying to understand how he must be feeling. And, you know, we ended up working very well together. I mean, I have to say he was so generous with his time. And I really tried very hard to use 
the time very wisely because I didn't want to interfere with the work he was doing now um, in the present moment. So, but it all worked out. And, you know, I think he had the input into the catalog that I think makes it a very exciting document. I mean, this is what is great about working with a living artist. You know, you get their voice, their input. I mean, there are pros and cons, but fortunately, and I've always found this with Jasper, you know, he's very, uh, he's not a controlling person in the sense that he would never interfere with an idea or, you know, uh, try to um, change something that I thought was important. Um, You know, I wanted his input into things, but if I argued convincingly that something should be done a certain way, you know, he would go along with it. On the other hand, I would also listen to his point of view, and I have to say that, um, you know, his conclusions were always very brilliant and finally... um, you know, really made a difference in making the catalog as special as I think it is, um, finally, in the outcome. Can, um, I want to ask what, what you think, um, or if you could share what some of those decisions were. Well, um, I'm just thinking, and there were so many. I mean, we did, you know, bring him in whenever it was relevant to do that, Um You know, even one thing where we disagreed, I thought that the works, we re-photographed almost every single work, um, mostly with one photographer. And that was something. Which I I should say is very unusual for a catalog resume, I'm finding. (laughs) It's an incredible, incredible feat because you traveled all over the world to see these works in person. Yeah. Yeah, well, I saw all the works, almost every single one in person to examine them and measure them and look at the materials and all of that. Um, But there was also the question of photography because we wanted consistency and we were able to uh, fortunately hire one photographer, Jamie Steckenberg, to uh, do almost all of the photography. I mean, some of it, like in Japan, we hired a photographer in Japan. Sometimes museums wanted their photographer to Mm -hmm. shoot the work. Um, You know, so there are some cases where other photographers um, did shoot the work. But uh, the issue I'm talking about has to do with whether the work was reproduced in its frame when it was framed or not. And Mm. Jasper um, very clearly decided that he didn't want the works reproduced with frames. And I thought they should be because it made them look more like objects. Right. Kind of was more authentically connecting them to their surroundings and so we talked a lot about that, but finally he wouldn't he wouldn't give in, except of course when the frame was integral to the work. And there are several examples, especially in the later work where that's the case. But finally, I believe he was right, even though some of the frames were original frames that he had put on, he really doesn't consider the frame to be his work. You know, when someone owns the work, they can frame it any way they want. And there are some cases where I think no collector would take off the frame because it is integral, but you never know. And from his point of view, once it's out of his hands, it's out of his hands. And so, you know, I think the catalog resume is true to that conception that we're looking at the work as he did it, not as how it might have a life beyond his studio. So I think that that, that's an example of how 
his thinking was, you know, kind of way ahead of mine in that sense. But on the other hand, you know, he wants his objects described in terms of materials in a very concise way. Um, and I totally respected that from the beginning, but I realized that we needed more information about materials than that kind of description offered. So we came up with the solution of notes that would go into more detail about materials and objects. Right. So he was he was interested in having something like the painting Fool's House, which has a broom and a teacup attached to it and a rag, I think. Um, he was interested in documenting it as oil painting or oil on canvas with objects. Right. And yet there's there's another perspective where you're coming from, which might want to say it's a it's a broom, it's a teacup, but this all has right relevance and needs to be documented um right i mean to him it was like well they can look at the photograph <laughs> and they can see but it, finally he understood that you know people don't always see everything when they look at a photograph and that there had to be you know some information mm -hmm. in the catalog that was accurate about what these objects were you know, and even, I mean, Fool's House is a good example because it was also the issue of charcoal mm -hmm. because he used charcoal a lot and particularly in works where he wrote words like in Fool's House and in earlier descriptions, the charcoal reference had been left out. So there were certain works we determined together at my suggestion where Charcoal should be put in because it is one of the primary materials. Right. So Fool's House is an example of that because there are words written with charcoal. So, you know, there were things like that that you would think would be kind of obvious on materials. You know, some artists, it's just oil on canvas. Mm -hmm. But with John's, the way the materials were described and cataloged, had its own unique um, set of issues. It's so interesting getting to go through this um, reevaluation with with Johns, and um, I'd love if you could talk about uh, determining the titles because I know that as you were examining works, you were getting to see the verso and how he might have referred to titles when he originally made or referred to the work when he originally made it, versus how it's been. Um, recorded in the history since. Um, if you could speak about like how right, you guys. Right. It was interesting because, you know, he hadn't looked at mm -hmm. the versos since they went out of the studio. And, you know, sometimes he would feel very strongly that the title on the verso should now be the title versus um, sometimes saying, well, the work has been under this title, like for example, the draw, right. which on the back said the draw, but it had only been called draw right. for many, many years and in many, many catalogs so and publications. So he decided, let's not call it the draw. Let's just keep it draw. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there were others where he insisted that, yes, this should be changed now. To what's on the back and you know there wasn't necessarily consistency about that but from my point of view it was his decision what the work should be called right. and so you know we did record the current title the inscription on the reverse we also captured how the work had been titled in various publications mm -hmm. so you know the user of the catalog gets an idea of the history of how the titles had been used. Yeah, um, that's so interesting. I'm, I'm thinking also in terms of both the chronology and the artist's input is the way the sequence of sculptures worked uh, or were established and how, um, I, I, like the first three sculptures, um, 
are the flashlights. And the first two were, I think, cast in 58, but then the third was 88, maybe. Um, I'm not 100% sure. And you think it's a chronological sequence for the sculpture catalog, but he's really invested in this idea that the cons of the concept, chronologically, the concept right. came in 1958. Right, exactly. This is very important. First of all, it was very important to him that the sculpture be a separate catalog. Oh, really? Because he talked about that. And I had said, well, what if the sculpture were integrated? He said, absolutely not. And I think it was partly because the sculptures were done in a in additions. Right. You know, but we decided from the get-go that every sculpture would be illustrated and given its own uh, page in the sculpture catalog because in others, for example, when things are additioned, the whole addition is considered one work. Right, yeah. So, you know, every single sculpture is in there. Um, But he was very much committed to the idea that when he first conceived of the sculpture, that it was its date. Mm -hmm. And that the casts from that original were um, to be put together in one group. Mm -hmm. So, you know, which is unusual and could have been done differently, but Finally, I understood and respected that decision. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, maybe you could speak even how how you determined with with him what was considered a painting and a sculpture and what wasn't. And there's there's two ways this can go. On on the one hand, you mentioned the the set for Walk Around Time earlier that he made while working right. as the director for the Merce Cunningham Dance Company and. those sets are at the Walker uh, in Minneapolis and he does not consider those to be sculpture. And um, I was wondering what was it like to make those determinations with him? Did he have sort of a a criteria that he was working with? Um, Right. I mean, he was very clear, you know, that any of the work he did for Morris Cunningham dance company as artistic advisor was a separate entity in his mind. Mm-hmm. Now all mm-hmm. the costumes, all any work he did on sets, including walk around time, something else, you know, and um, he, you know, felt that way. There were a few examples of very few of things you know, that could have been, uh, you know, like he and Rauschenberg worked on something for a happening early on together. And that work, which I think is owned now, uh, may have been given to the Met Museum by Lucas Samaras, is listed as something by Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns. But to him, that's not an artwork. You know, and he really didn't want any, there were some things he did in Japan where, you know, other artists were involved with doing a little funny thing. He doesn't consider that his work. And, you know, I... And also, the, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Yeah, I, I also am thinking about work uh, before 1954. He was also pretty adamant about a, a start date yes. for the catalog. yes. Now, we didn't go looking around for earlier works, but there really weren't sculptures or paintings. There were drawings, and Mm -hmm. that was an issue for the drawing catalog resume. You know, it is a tricky issue, but fortunately we didn't really have to deal with it because we didn't know of things earlier but you know I also respect you know for him there is a date when he becomes an artist and you know I think that's as long as that's known then you know earlier works will come up 
maybe even a painting that he did when he was in college or something like that. But, you know, we didn't go looking for those things. I understand. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the the drawing catalog and, and that also leads to another way that I know that Johns was involved in determining what was in the painting and sculpture catalog. And so many of his works sort of test the limits of the categories of medium, you know, like what's a painting, what's a flag, what's a sculpture. Um, and I know that there were some some works that ended up in one catalog or another that could arguably have been um, like Liar, for instance. I know right. uh, that is a work that is in the painting and sculpture catalog, but is on paper. Right. Um, right. We really couldn't come up with a fast, hard and fast definition. So we actually, Kate Gans and I, probably spent at least three sessions with him deciding. And some things went back and forth. But finally, a decision was made uh, based on what he thought the works were. So, you know, one idea was if something on paper was mounted on canvas, it was a painting. But in the case of Liar, it wasn't mounted on canvas, but it's mostly done and encaustic, and he considers it a painting. So it really came down to each instance uh, being decided upon finally by Johns, but after very careful scrutiny by Kate Gans, who was working on the drawings, and myself working from the perspective of paintings and, you know, really thinking everything through. So we all felt very satisfied with the final decisions about that. When you said scrutinize, I think another element of this catalog, and I, I think a good catalog resume in general is, um, I remember we were very careful not to include speculation. Yes. Um, and that, that was very important to John's, that it was, right. even if there was 99% likelihood that what we thought was true. He really only wanted things that you could 100% certain of right. to be included, especially in the cataloging. Right, right. He That's why he didn't want essays on the page. I mean, that's another way to do a catalog right. resume, which has its merits. But for John's, he wanted the catalog just to be about the work in a very... Um, specific way that had to do with things that could be verified. And right. so, you know, it ended up, and, and I think what was interesting was the decision that we made not to include the literature references on the cataloging page. And that had to do somewhat with design, but also the way we wanted the information presented. We didn't want to use abbreviations. We wanted the catalog user to, if they were looking at exhibitions, they would see the full information about the exhibitions. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas if we had had literature references on the page, that would have been impossible to do with many of the works. So, but also it was interesting because at the beginning of this, John said, why do we need the literature references? And I think, in thinking about it, because I said, well, that's standard practice, and it shows how the work gets known in the world. But to him, a lot of that was about speculative information. And in many cases, you know, interpretations that were speculation or even information that may not be correct, you know, whatever. Right. Um, So to him, I... I mean, I think finally it was it was very wise of him to suggest, because it was his suggestion, that maybe those references could go elsewhere. And that solved our design problem. And also right. somewhat his concern that everything on that page was something that could be verified. It's a, it's a great equalizer. Because if we'd included the literature references, a work like Flag, already so laden with historical reputation, 
it would have appeared that way in the catalog resume. And the way you two came to this solution, every work can kind of be considered on its own. And it, that seems in the spirit of what he wanted to have happen. Right, he did. Um, and I think it works. I think, you know, you go through and you, you know, kind of look at the body of work and you don't make judgments about what's more important or not. You know, I mean, certainly some things are exhibited more frequently, etc., and that's obvious. But um, mm-hmm. I think he wanted it to be, you know, kind of a something where if you want to know the work, here it is, and here's the basic information. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the book was important to him. I think originally he might have been thinking the catalog could exist even without the book. But he certainly was amenable to the book being its own volume in the catalog. Mm-hmm. And then he also, and I was, you know, wanted this too. He wanted the book to be available independently because, you know, the catalog right. is, it's five volumes, it's expensive, et cetera, et cetera. And he wanted the book, as I did, to be more widely available to scholars and students and the general public. Mm -hmm. So it all worked out. And really because WPI was really, uh, you know, under Elizabeth and with, with you there, you know, was so amazing in terms of getting the catalog published and then getting the book published almost immediately thereafter. And for that, I am hugely grateful. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it um I think it works so well with for Johns especially because he works so often in series that you're able to address the big picture rather than having lots and lots of small essays on individual flags, which sort of would lead to this imbalance because certain I mean, some flags are perhaps more historically significant or, you know, how would you choose where to include information about Flagsman? It's, it's a lifelong interest. Um, You're able to really talk about it as something that has evolved over the course of his entire career. Right. I mean, I think the, because of the way I approach the work as an art historian, I think it works well with the catalog because I, you know, I am trying to show how the work evolves over time, how it, you know, and, you know, and, and also, you know, the allusions that he makes to uh, his artistic predecessors, etc. You know, he didn't want that on the catalog page. Right. That would have been right. an easy thing to include. You know, well, here's the reference. But then he might have 10 works with the same reference. So they might come at different times. And, you know, so I think the solutions we came up with, you know, and the design solutions and, you know, Porter um, was very amenable to Porter Gillespie, the designer, to uh, input from me and from Jasper and, you know, work very closely mm-hmm. with us to come up with um, a design that really worked for, you know, because every, every catalog resume, as we always, Heidi and I would talk about this and you and whoever, you know, then joined the team, um, including Betsy Stepina Zinn, who I mentioned, who came in toward the end to edit it all and bring it together. Um, yeah. You know, it. well, first of all, it is really a team effort. There's no question. But um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, the design, um, the solution of the design, you, uh, Porter was amenable to right. incorporating your feedback. Um, right. Well, anyway. Yes, it was a team effort. Jasper, I mean, right from the beginning, I wanted the artist's voice to 
to be mm -hmm. central to this enterprise. And I think that's finally how it worked. And, um, you know, everyone ended up being very pleased about it. So I, I have one final question, and that is really, um, do you know how Jasper Johns felt about having a catalog resume completed on him? You know, what in a how, how did he feel about having his work classified in real time, I guess? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I do think, I think it was, and I do think probably most artists feel this way. I mean, they want their work to be documented well on the one hand. On mm -hmm. the other, you know, the creative process isn't one that is reasoned, you know, like a catalog resonant. Right. You know, it's... yeah about jumps and starts and stepping backwards and then forward and, you know, and so the very idea of, you know, being cataloged in this reason way kind of goes against the grain of the creative process. And I think John's definitely felt that as the whole thing was going on. But, you know, I think he did understand that this was a valuable uh, document. First of all, he wanted me to do the second book for so long that I think he was happy that that got done. But I think mm -hmm. he realizes what a valuable document this is and that, you know, hopefully the body of work he's done since then, which has been quite extensive, you know, will be documented in some kind of supplement. I think it makes sense mm -hmm. to do something online. You know, you and I have talked about, you know, correcting things, the few things are relatively <laughs> few that need to be corrected from the original catalog. But, you know, it may also be possible to um, create an online edition or, you know, maybe a publication too in the future. I hope you don't mind me bringing up this story, but um, I can't. I can't help it because it's such a good line. I I vaguely remember um, someone in John's studio caught him changing a signature, and I don't want to ascribe any sort of um, <laughs> bad intention to it, but changing a signature after you'd examined the painting. Um, right. He actually. And, that sort of motivates my question about how he felt about uh, having a catalog resume done. But I remember he had a really delightful response to you. Uh, what was it? Yeah, well, I saw him um, signing and dating, you know, something I'd already examined that was already signed, sealed, and delivered for the catalog. <laughs> and I saw him writing, I think it was a signature and a date. It was at least a date. And I said, Jasper, you can't do that. <laughs> Well, <laughs> the reverse. And he said, well, you can't get everything right. You know, it was almost like this mischievous twinkle in his eye, like I'm going to do something so that everything you did wasn't right. Of course, now when he finds something wrong, the, you know, he's like upset about it. You know, some, you know, little <laughs> things that you and I have talked about. Um, but, you know, there was this like mischievous twinkle. I thought that was kind of sweet, but I didn't appreciate it totally. I think we must have seemed so serious to him. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, I'd always talk about the backs and I'd show him the pictures I took. And, you know, he'd kind of go, oh, ho-hum, who cares about the backs? And then he started doing a series of sculptures and he started using the reverse as an image oh, wow. in these relief sculptures. And I remember when I saw her the first time, I said, Jasper, you the back is also, you know, an artwork. And he said, well, I guess you have finally influenced me about the back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I thought that was very sweet, too, you know. Because he did get involved in the process. I mean, I have to say, as I said, was extremely generous with his time yeah. Uh, yeah. to help make the project 
what we all wanted it to be. So it was, it was really an amazing experience and working with Heidi and you and Betsy and all the others, um, you know, Kate and Lauren and Katie and, you know, all along the way was just a wonderful, wonderful experience for me personally. And I have to give a shout out to Vicky who played a big role once she was able to help out. So it was, it was an amazing experience all around. This seems like a great place to uh, wrap up just, um, but thank you so much for sharing these stories. Um, You know, you said it yourself, what an amazing experience getting to work with Jasper Johns on this project. It's something I'm also immensely grateful for. Well, it was very special and our friendship was coming out of it was very special to to me and to Vicky. So that's something. Once this uh, virus is, you know, finally conquered, we have to come see you and Natalie and little Art. I know. Yes, absolutely. All right. Thanks for listening to the WPI Oral Histories. All copyright WPI 2020.